The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. With great joy, I can say I've, I've known many of you as friends, some for a very long time, and some great friends that I'm looking out seeing now that we go back a long way. And I, uh, I love to be able to know you all as those that I consider to excel in this topic. And so it's certainly out of no concern. The main reason I'm preaching on it is uh, honestly because it's the next one. What I, what I mean by that is, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, this sermon is a continuation of a series that... Uh, that goes back quite a ways that I, I preach on every once in a while. And um, today is going to be about the fourth beatitude, which is blessed are, the, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I've attempted to prepare a standalone sermon, even though one beatitude does not stand very well without the others. The beatitudes are the amazing list of qualities and corresponding promises given by Jesus as his first words in his infamous Sermon on the Mount. But not a list without order or unity, rather they run like an engine with many parts, each necessary to the whole. The Beatitudes track how the grace of God changes us from the inside out to make us more and more like him. They show us what it looks like when one germinates with new life in Christ and grows to bear fruit. They are the marks in the DNA of a true child of God, with each mark present in each believer. As such, they stand, I think, in strong opposition to what we hear from time to time, that sanctification is good, but not really necessary for the Christian. That somehow we can come to know Jesus as our redeeming crucified Savior, and yet not be fundamentally changed by it. So then the Beatitudes are also an important checklist or diagnostic test by which we are to evaluate our Christian experience and vitality. So as we come to this particular fourth Beatitude, we should keep in mind that it is describing part of a larger process. It is part of an epic story where the plot thickens with each chapter, building on and adding to Uh, what's come before. The story of the Beatitudes is about how God powerfully rescues and transforms his children who have been kidnapped and brainwashed by an enemy to rebel against God and to hate him. He captures them back and wins their hearts and with joy they walk with him and join him in the family mission and ministry of reconciliation to the world even to the point of suffering. So we'll be picking up the story of the Beatitudes in the middle and we come to a truly wonderful development which we'll be examining by asking four questions. First, we'll consider what is it that Jesus is referring to in this beatitude? Well, right off the bat, it is a relief to notice that we have a characteristic that we'd actually expect to see in a sacred list. It sounds entirely fitting without any surprises like we had with the first three beatitudes that require us to wonder what it is Jesus is getting at by calling those traits blessed. 
With this beatitude, we see that the gospel so fundamentally changes our relationship with God that we feel an inner compulsion to be in the will of God. And it's not a compulsion based on obligation or guilt, but based on pure desire. We have new and growing tastes and cravings, an appetite that can only be satisfied by walking righteously with God in faith, love, and obedience. With this beatitude, Jesus is telling us that there is an inseparable link between justification and sanctification, between being made holy uh, by Christ as a gift and growing in holiness in our daily lives, between accepting the sacrifice of Christ as our righteousness and offering our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And the link that we see is music to our ears. This beatitude is declaring that believers in Jesus will be a godly people because they will be driven on the inside to be a godly people. Meaning that as God works in his children, he will rally the power of our desires to put off the old self who lived for sin and to put on the new self who lives for God. I love how Paul describes what motivates him in 2 Corinthians uh, 5. He says, Christ's love compels me, for I am convinced that one died for all, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, Paul certainly lived an incredible life, maybe, maybe the most incredible. But I don't think Paul would want us to be overly impressed by how he lived his life, but rather that we would be much more amazed by the love of God that filled him with such a joy and passion for living it. Personally, this beatitude is my favorite, and I find it so encouraging because it gives us a logical reason and a strong hope that we can and will actually walk in a way that it more and more pleases God. And that we will see progress in our fight against sin and its mastery over us. A kid uh, seated at a table looking at a plate mounded with peas that he has to eat. Now what kind of, what kind of look does he have on his face? He knows that they must be good for him, but he eats them only because he forces himself to. I think this is how the worldly view the religious. They often admire them, that someone can make choices and live a lifestyle that most must obviously go so counter to what their nature inside them wants to do. And I do think in most cases that's true, but this, but this beatitude does not agree with that. It presents a much more exciting picture of growing in sanctification, one which does not primarily come from our power to overcome the desires or our desires, but rather from a power that changes them. Do you remember when it first dawned on you that your desires aren't always working against you? When you found yourself wanting to follow God in an area that used to be distasteful? I have a good friend uh, who is now a PCA pastor, and when he was growing up, he was just like that kid looking at a, the plate of peas in regard to going to church. And, um, and so he decided that he wasn't going to go anymore. 
And so his mom told him that she would give him $5 for every time that he went. This was 40 years ago, so that was a good bit. Um, So he was at church every week from then on. And that was 40 years ago, and his mom still pays him. Uh, No. (laughs) Actually, not. Um, When he was 12, he felt he had to tell his mom that she could stop paying him. Because now he wanted to go and to be a part of God's church. His desires that previously worked inside him as an enemy in this area became his friend, fulfilling his key role in sanctifying him. My friend's mother was obviously thrilled, and not just because she was going to save a bundle, but because the change in his desires were the clearest evidence that the truth of the gospel had been received. The bribe kept him in church, but that was not the indicator that mattered to her. When she saw the desire, she knew the battle was won. The desires were a reflection of what he believed and were now controlling him toward church and not away from it. One graphic way the Bible illustrates control, uh, this controlling power of of our righteous desires is by making a parallel with the controlling power of our desire to sin, which is powerful, and the imagery is slavery. Jesus said that the man who sins is a slave to sin. And we might balk at that and say, aren't I sinning because I want to sin? Nobody's forcing me to or putting my arm behind my back or making me do it. That's true. But the master behind sin is much smarter and much more sinister than that. He makes sure that sin looks so necessary and so sensible and so fulfilling that not only is resistance futile, resistance is unthinkable and counter to what we think we want and need. Why would we do it? But in truth, of course, sin is anything but necessary or sensible or fulfilling. It's just meth. It's just crack, and Satan is the drug dealer. Or I love, as Colin put it so many years ago, remember Colin? It's chocolate-covered poop. (laughs) James 1. James 1 puts it this way. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed, and when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Titus 3 says, at one time you too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Well, it's it's a pretty daunting way to speak of sin, and it sounds hopeless for us, and I think it should. But check out how Romans 6 powerfully describes what happens to those who have come to believe in Christ as their Savior. Says, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time for the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death, but now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. What he is saying is that in a similar way that our desires drive us to sin, now our desires answer to a new master who has gained our love and trust so that we cannot help but want to be in his will. This is how Jesus himself lived. Uh, As faith 
as a man in a fallen world, how did he do it? He shows the perfection of this trait, how all he did was controlled by his hunger and his thirst for righteousness. In the wonderful story of the woman in the well, uh, in John 4, Jesus gives us insight into what drives him. In the story, we're told of how he's tired and hungry, and he sits by a well, and his disciples go off to buy some food. And a scandalous woman comes out to draw water, and Jesus engages her in an extraordinary conversation in which she comes to realize that he is the promised Messiah sent by God. When the disciples return with food, they say, Rabbi, eat something. But he replies, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. They wondered if someone had brought him a sandwich or something, and, and uh, Jesus picks this opportune time to reveal to them what it is that really fulfills them. And he tells them this, my food is to do the will of him, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Seeking and saving this woman filled his soul. Yes, in part because he truly did care for her and, and for her welfare, but primarily, he says it was because it drove him by passion to do all that the Father sent him to do. His trust in his Father and his love for his Father was so great that the Father's glory and, and pleasure was his primary concern. In John 8, he said that he always did what pleases the Father. Jesus was always driven to obey the Father because it filled him utterly to please the Father. The greatest test of this, of course, would be when the time came for him to lay down his life. How would he marshal the fortitude that night to say, not my will, but thine be done? This is what he told his disciples earlier that evening so that they would understand how he could willingly go to the cross. He told them, the prince of this world is coming. He has no hope, meaning, Jesus, meaning Satan. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Even then, he was so compelled by his complete trust and love for his Father that he could never deviate from a single detail of what the Father sent him to do. Now let's consider a second question. How is this characteristic a distinct trait in those who believe in Jesus? Clearly our world is full of spiritual people, many of whom are not Christians, and it is not hard to find very sincere and committed followers of these religions. Their devoutness is undeniable, and I think in some cases it surpasses ours and puts us to shame. Where the difference is, is not in the level of devoutness, but in what is driving it. An experience I had in the summer between my junior and senior year in high school illustrates this a little bit. Though uh, I quickly mentioned it to Charlie a little while ago, this story has not yet been told. A few of us uh, from my high school unit, my ROTC unit, were NJROTC unit were invited to go to something called Leadership Academy in Norfolk, Virginia. Sounded nice. We bought our bathing suits and some money even for movies, that sort of thing, but it wound up being basically a week of Marine boot camp. Screaming, barking orders, push-ups, just like the old school movies. 
To say I was utterly unprepared would be a huge understatement. It was mostly a terrifying experience and completely disorienting. I survived by counting down the hours. Truly, I mean, counting down the hours, counting down the days was way too overwhelming. I instantly learned that the key to my success would be to not be noticed, doing nothing that could get you singled out. It was in the middle of this already unthinkable, nightmarish first day that I heard the words I'll never forget. A particularly intimidating corporal said with very disturbing satisfaction, you think we're bad. Nothing, nothing ever is good that starts like that. Uh, you think we're bad, just wait till daddy gets home. Apparently, I had another daddy. <laughs> hey, Dad. <laughs> but for some reason, this revelation brought me absolutely no comfort. <laughs> Reality turned out to be worse than I feared, and I feared a lot. When I heard what sounded like a large, angry Doberman was in the building, I knew that Daddy was home. Forty of us stood at attention across from each other, knowing one of us poor souls would be the example of his fury to the rest, and no way was it going to be me. I could, I, I could tell that my shirt was not perfectly tucked, so I slightly moved my thumb up to correct it. Nobody could have seen it, and yet, at that very moment, I definitely noticed something thick and spastic was barreling down the line. Couldn't possibly be for me, and yet there he was, Daddy. And we were face to face, literally, forehead to forehead. It was difficult to make out what he was saying through the screaming, but I could make out a few words. I guess the corporal did not want to be left out of our little get-to-know-you moment, so he joined in with his forehead. And as they pushed me back, I definitely remember that it was simply loud and not very nice. All that was to set up the scene. A couple days later, we were getting trained on a very hot and humid Virginia day on a very hot tarmac, and we were getting thirsty. But you couldn't even drink from your canteen without Daddy's permission, and none of us dared to ask him. My thirst was really starting to get to me, and at some point, I couldn't take it anymore. So when Daddy's back was turned, <laughs> I twisted off the canteen cap. I looked around, bent down a bit to hide, and I took a sip. The problem was, when I started drinking, I couldn't stop for nothing. You know that feeling where you just like, and I just kept going and going till I could hardly drink anymore, and still, Daddy's back kept turned. So I decided to polish off the whole canteen which I did, and then I twisted back the cap. And even though I felt like I was some sort of overfilled water balloon, it was a victorious moment for me. Even better, almost immediately after this, we were commanded to make sure that our canteens were full. So now I had a full canteen again, and oh, how I was, I was high-fiving myself. Well, right then, Daddy expressed his concern that we might not be getting enough water. To make sure we did, we were all ordered to drink our canteens until they were empty. <laughs> now what was I going to do? Two full canteens at one time. I started in, but every swallow was hard. Eventually, 
there was just two of us left and I could feel daddy's eyes burning into me. I felt horrible, but with great determination, I got it done and I wasn't last. Yes. <laughs> seen from afar, you would have seen a guy who was driven to drink two canteens of water. But if you took a closer look, you would notice that one canteen I drank because I was compelled to do so within. The other I drank because I was forced. One I drank because of the water, the other I drank in spite of the water. Both times I was zealous to drink, but one time I was driven by an uncontrollable desire for water, the other time out of a fear of punishment. Similarly, in religion, zeal for righteousness can be fueled by a true love for God that produces a genuine desire to walk in His will, but zeal for righteousness can also be fueled by a fear of punishment. The Apostle Paul is a great example of both. Before becoming a Christian, he was a very fervent Jewish Pharisee. He says in Galatians, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He told the Philippians that as a Jew, he had much to boast about. He said he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But why? What really was driving this amazing level of religious passion? He was earning spiritual merit badges, which he thought he needed to have in order to be good with God. This is to say that he was striving out of a fear of punishment. His acceptance by God hinged on his performance of religious works. Did this generate any real love for God? How could it? In his mind, God's treatment of him was based not on love, but only on what he deserved. He lived striving to meet a standard in order to hopefully be blessed and accepted. This belief certainly motivated a high degree of spiritual activity in Paul. But not only could it never save him, it could never produce in him a true hunger and thirst for righteousness that flows from a deep affection for God. Rather, it was done as the necessary cost to get the result that he did want. And he's by no means alone. If you want to go to heaven, then you got to be good. Or at least be a basically good person. Or if you want to be reincarnated as Denzel and not as a bug, you better build up some good karma. But Paul is brought into the light of uh, the light and understands the gospel when he's brought into the light and understands the gospel. And he understands the gift of God through Christ towards sinners. Then he comes to the realization that his impressive pedigree and his amazing zeal that he boasted in are worthless and even less than worthless. He considers them rubbish, accomplishing nothing but to lull him into self-flattery and a deluded sense of rightness with God, when in reality, it was just the opposite. And this leads us into our third question, which, was, which is, how does the gospel produce in us such a trust and love for God that we can't help but want to follow him? Or put again, how do God's people become slaves to righteousness? If I had to point to a verse that most concisely provides the answer, I would go to Romans 5, 8, which says, 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Nothing we deserved, he came as a gift. Now, when you look at the cross, what do you see most? The justice of God or the love of God? Well, I think it's the safest question in the world, for there really is no answer. So let me just ask a question. Which do you see? Do, how many, raise your hand if it's the justice of When you look at the cross, you see the justice of God. Would you say you see the justice of God most? All right. And how many would say, I see the love of God the most? Okay, that's typical. Both are right. It hardly matters which you raised your hand for because you can't see one without seeing the other. When we look at the cross, we are taking in simultaneously the infinite justice and love of God. The cross literally defines them both. If you said it was love, it's because we see that his justice shown us there has set a bar that is so high that only one who loves us so dearly would pay it. And if you said it's the justice that you see, that's because his great love shown us there has enabled you to acknowledge without fear of punishment what we deserve for our wickedness. Put another way, how terrible it must be what we have done against God if the cross is what is required to save us. I mean, just think about that. How terrible it must be what we've done if the cross is what's required to save us. And yet, how he must love us if he's willing to do it. What a hopeful message for fallen humanity who are fearful, full of doubt and suspicion of God. The demonstration of the cross cut, cuts through all debate about God for there can be only one explanation for such an act. For as Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. The cross makes it clear. He doesn't hate us because we first hated him. And now we can love him because he first loved us. This great salvation not only secures our eternal life in his almighty hands, but it also strikes a death blow to the controlling power of sin in us. Galatians 5 graphically declares this saying that those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. How so? Because it is impossible for the recipients of such amazing grace to remain unchanged in their affections to God and in their trust in his will, and it fills them to please him and to honor him by walking in his ways. Final question that I think we should probably ask here is, why then uh, does sin still have a hold on us? In a sense, to be a Christian is to be a complex being. And remembering this can be helpful in forming our expectations for our lives in this world. Yes, there are important things we can do and not do that can greatly impact the role of sin in our lives. In this regard, I encourage you to pay closest attention to your commitments to the means 
of grace that God has provided. Prayer, the word, church, serving. However, the reality is that we will not be free from sin until we are raised from glory. And so we'll always be struggling with it. Why is this? When anyone puts their faith in Christ as their Savior, this is such a change that they are, biblically speaking, called a new creation, a new self born of God. This new self loves and trusts God and looks favorably on God's will, which produces in them a desire to walk in it. However, the old self that we were before belief in Christ, who was enslaved to sin, is not entirely gone but is dying a slow death. Practically speaking, this means that we'll feel a fight going on inside us, competing desires pulling us in two different directions. And at times, it feels schizophrenic. It's pretty amazing how Paul puts it in Romans 7. This is what he says. He says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, as it is, is no longer I myself who do it, but, lives, but sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. What I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. From my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So even though he sins, he's saying, that's not really me. The real me wishes that I could be free of its mastery. The real me delights in God's law, and I want to be in it. This kind of perspective can be a helpful ray of comfort and joy in the midst of our discouragement over our sin, feeling so weak in resisting it. In our inner battles, even when sin wins... This should not be seen as a lack of desire for righteousness. Meaning we don't have it. Meaning we should conclude, oh, I don't ha- I, because I've sinned, I must not have this hunger and thirst for righteousness. Therefore, maybe I'm not a Christian. We should not conclude that. But rather, it is a confirmation of it. We would feel no conflict if the desire for righteousness wasn't real. You never really feel the power of sin until its control over you is threatened, until you try to stop it. When you desire to bring about a regime change, you should not expect those, you, those that you are deposing to take it sitting down. That's why I never worry much about the students who are frustrated in their wrestling with sin. I take it as a great sign that they've actually entered into the war. For they'd never enter it with a passion to win if they did not love the Lord or trusted in his will or desired to see him pleased and exalted in their lives. That's that's what's upsetting them. 
what they desire to be the case, and yet they're losing. But why do they, why do they desire? Why does it upset them? Because the desire is actually real. As final closing thought, I think we need to say for sure that the promise of this beatitude reminds us that we are en route to the promised land and that the righteousness we taste now whets our appetite for the fullness that we are waiting for. So as we fight the good fight, may we let that fight lift our eyes to the day of our Lord's return when we'll be raised in glory and invited to feast forever with perfect satisfaction at the table of righteousness. For blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful beatitude, and I pray that you would use it to encourage us all our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.